You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Come rally round the good old flag and give them loud huzzas. Let every man do what he can to help the noble cause. For Cleveland and for Stevenson will battle every storm and pass the cry along the line for revenue reform. 1892. Cleveland is the man. One of the songs you would have heard during that campaign. It would have been handed out in sheet music because piano singing and music was a big deal. Dear sir, I received a copy of the song that you have written to be used, as you say, for an encourager during the approaching campaign. So wrote Grover Cleveland to Will Shakespeare Hayes. I believe with you that the influence of songs and music of the right sort ought not to be overlooked as important adjuncts to a political campaign. Yours truly, Grover Cleveland. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This from Clark University. Music may seem insignificant in relation to the numerous elements of an election, but campaign songs can play a major role in the way that a candidate is perceived and have represented the constantly shifting relationship between music and politics. Not every voter is going to be educated on political issues or have a strong political affiliation. So personality becomes a huge part of campaign strategy. Then and now, candidates, therefore, will use music in attempt to relate to voters and gain support to make a point. The Democrats have won the day. They're done with party strife. With Cleveland at the helm, we'll run the country now for life. So in 1888, the kind of doomed candidacy of Grover Cleveland and Alan Thurman, Will S. Hayes was known as the Bard of Kentucky, tries this song, Cleveland and Thurman. With Cleveland at the helm, we'll run the country now for life. He has a lot of songs that we probably haven't heard of, but they're kind of pre-ragtime music, country music of this time, the 1880s, 1890s. We Parted by the Riverside, Jimmy Brown, the Newspaper Boy, I'll Remember You Love in My Prayers, Cleveland and Thurman. His democratic head is right, his heart is always warm, so shout aloud and swell the crowd for revenue reform. Now, in um, the Harrison-Whitelaw side, what they did is use a bit of the same campaign song that William Henry Harrison and his campaign had used in 1840, Tippecanoe and Tyler II. But since Harrison had replaced Vice President Morton with Whitelaw Reed on the ticket, Whitelaw Reed was a newspaper editor, politician, and thought to be very progressive. There was really a thought that Whitelaw Reed would bring more people out. It didn't really last. So they used that, and instead of Tippecanoe and Tyler, too, it was Tippecanoe and Whitelaw, too. 
And who has heard the great commotion, motion, motion, all the country through? It's the ball rolling on for Tippecanoe and Whitelaw, too. And instead of beating Martin Van Puren to a pulp, which the uh, 1840 song talks about, it's, And with them will beat Steve Grove. <laughs> With them will beat Steve Grove. Something was going on in Kentucky during the 1892 election that hadn't happened in the entire state before. And that was, instead of voting by voice, viva voce, Kentucky adopted the Australian secret ballot in all elections. This was by a constitutional change. That's a radical revision. All elections whether state, local, town, or district in Kentucky, were consolidated into a single election day, first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, falling in place with many around the nation. Registration became compulsory in towns with a population more than 5,000. And the Australian secret ballot, where state-printed ballots with all the major party candidates listed on them so voters could choose would be the mechanism for voting. Not everybody was happy. Here's the Owensboro Messenger. The election tomorrow will be held under the old system of Viva Voce voting and will be the last opportunity voters will ever have of walking up and expressing their votes openly. In 1890, Iowa Governor Larrabee declared that the 22nd General Assembly would take up the matter of bringing the Australian ballot to Iowa, but Republicans couldn't support the Democratic bill, so Republicans offered their own measure in 1892. Democrats in Iowa decided they didn't have the votes to get their own passed, they just embraced the Republican bill. And Iowa became the 38th state to adopt the reform before the 1892 election. Local officials had to scurry to print new official ballots for 1892 for the contest between Benjamin Harrison and Grover Cleveland. There was the matter of supplying a newfangled voting booth for every 60 voters. So every 60 voters had to have a booth that they could go in. Polk County, a major county in Iowa, bought 450 three-foot square canvas models at $4 apiece from the quickly formed Iowa Voting Booth Company for a total of $1,800. Local papers published the new voting rules. Hours were from 8 to 8. Disabled voters could be offered help, but drunkards were given none and thrown out if they dawdled past the 10-minute limit. In Massachusetts, the Australian ballot had already been in place, and Massachusetts Governor Oliver Ames said in the North American Review, that he looked forward to an improved, reduced electorate that brought good manners to electoral behavior. And with the new law requiring the ability to read the state constitution in English, 
would be the best test of the reading and writing qualification that has ever been had. Therein you see the good side and the bad side of this ballot that generally we see as something positive and that we have in many places today. Now, the mechanism of voting is usually by a machine, but we have an Australian ballot type system. This was ridiculed in a lot of places. In New York City, it was not popular among the Tammany Hall. Governor David B. Hill, who we talked about in the last episode, as a rival to Cleveland, will veto the Australian ballot legislation in New York. It's ridiculed in the press as the kangaroo ballot. I know that it seems impossible to argue against the Australian ballot, but there are arguments that you can make. It absolutely depresses turnout because it's usually combined with a registration system. It could be nefarious, as in Arkansas, where the Democratic Party in 1892 was successful in getting the Australian ballot in that state and had a campaign song that becomes pretty clear about you know what they're doing it for, because it requires a person to be literate. The Australian ballot works like a charm. It makes them think and scratch. And when an African-American, and they didn't say that, gets a ballot, he certainly has got his match. They go into the booth alone, their ticket to prepare, and as soon as five minutes are out, they got to get from there. And then by the time you get to 1900, only seven states are still using the ticket pre- system, previous system where you would drop usually color-coded tickets into a box to reflect that party choice. South Carolina is the last state to get the Australian ballot system in 1950. Here's David Hill with a 23-page explanation as to why he's against the bill. The Saxton ballot, which he calls it, would be discriminatory towards the candidates because it would make the process to become a candidate more difficult. Ballot clerks would be decided by the political parties and therefore easily corrupted. It would be difficult to nominate a candidate. Functional issues with the ballot as proposed on top of the bigger issue of who is going to pay for this entire new system. The Saxon bill would mean candidates could be easily discriminated against since they needed a certain percentage of the population to sign a petition in order to have their name appear on this state ballot. This would not be fair to smaller parties, Hill says. It is seems on the surface at least a little disingenuous for Tammany Hall's major player to be so concerned about these small little parties when uh, his signature phrase is, I am a Democrat. Split ticket voting increases with the introduction of the Australian ballot system. So it certainly makes what was a weird thing. Grover Cleveland was a Democratic candidate designed to get Republican mugwump votes much more common as you get into the turn of the century. Here's from the American Political Science Review in 1970, the effect of the Australian ballot reform on split ticket voting between 1876 and 1908. The party strip system did not deny the possibility of a ticket splitting vote. There are ways to vote a split ticket if the individual had the motivation to find out how. And you could scratch a name off a ballot and write the name of another party's candidate above it. You could take two different party ballots, marking each for certain offices, and then have them attached together before depositing them in the ballot box. But it's rare to find instructions on how to do this. And certainly a party hawker who's going to give you that ballot is not going to mention this possibility. It's more likely in precincts where such a practice was more favored that 
you would even know how to do it or get it counted successfully. Institutional properties, the American Political Review writes, of the electoral system considered either as an entity or a network of component parts have played and continue to play a crucial role in influencing and shaping voting behavior, in essentially defining the conditions and boundaries of decision-making at the polls. The introduction and establishment of the Australian ballot in states led to an increase in ticket splitting in comparison to the previous ballot system. So, Grover Cleveland's second election occurs in a time of great electoral reform for the country. He was five feet, ten inches high, almost completely bald. He wore a mustache and short side whiskers, which served partially to conceal the scar of a razor wound given to him by a murderer whom he had convicted when he was an assistant district attorney. David B. Hill is described by the son of the Union General, George B. McClellan, George B. McClellan Jr., congressman and future mayor of New York. He always dressed in black and wore a frock coat. When not wearing a rather battered top hat, which he usually did outdoors, he wore a funny little gray soft hat that could be rolled up and put in his pocket. Open waistcoat, narrow black tie, and turned-down collar. He always had three frock coats, the best he wore on state occasions, the second best he wore ordinarily, and the third best he used as a dressing ground with carpet slippers in his home. When the third best coat grew threadbare, it disappeared, and the second took its place. And a new one was bought to head the list. He was not a college man, but he was an omnivorous reader in certain lines. In American history, he was one of the best informed men I have ever met, as he was in political science. Of Europe, he knew little and cared less. He had never left the United States and had no interest to go outside our country. But he knew the writings of Jefferson almost by heart, and cared less than nothing for fiction. His only recreations were the theater and baseball. He was unscrupulous in politics, but absolutely money honest. Money meant nothing to him except as a lubricant to the political machine. He had devoted supporters, but no real friends. The only human being I've ever heard of speak of with affection was his mother. He took me as an aide on his staff with rank of colonel. I was doing a great deal with him, and he became my first, and I'm afraid my last, political hero. Take him all in all. He was in many ways the strangest man I have ever known. He had absolutely no vices. He never smoked, gambled, or touched alcohol. Hill was a thinking machine with neither likes nor dislikes. He was absolutely cold-blooded and would sacrifice a supporter or favor an opponent with equal facility if it was in his interest to do so. My first opportunity to judge Hill's effectiveness as a politician was in 1891 at the Democratic State Convention at Saratoga. The convention was so well in hand that it functioned like clockwork. The program was all arranged in advance. The candidates to be nominated chosen before, as well as the officers of the convention and those who were to make the speeches. The convention always lasted for at least two days in order to give the hotel, restaurant, and barkeepers of the favored city an opportunity to make a sufficient profit to put them in a good humor so as to count upon their financial help for the campaign. George B. McClellan Jr. is going to be elected to his first political position, that of the president of the board of aldermen, kind of like a city council president in New York City 
He wins, as does Grover Cleveland, as does David B. Hill, as does everyone on the Democratic ticket in New York in 1892 in that election. The earth is a generous mother, Burke Cochran said. There is enough for all. She will provide in plentiful abundance food for all her children, if they will but cultivate her soil in justice and in peace. This was a line of Cochran's quoted by Winston Churchill in his famous Iron Curtain speech. Burke Cochran, really William Burke Cochran, was born in County Sligo, Ireland, 1854. He, he wasn't a person that came to the United States because he didn't have any money in his pockets. He actually came from a fairly well-to-do family and came to the United States for educational and development reasons. And he exceeded here um, greatly. Came here at the age of 18, found work in a teaching and then worked for a judge, became a lawyer. By the time he's 40, he's not only a congressman, but he's also got a private legal practice that's the equivalent of $2.5 million today. He's got a house in Long Island, a house in Fifth Avenue. So this isn't like a struggling person. He's a well-regarded uh, congressman, an orator. Um, one of the things that I didn't talk about in the cast, in last week's cast, about Grover Cleveland and his third election, where Burke Cochran comes in as Tommy's hitman of sorts to attack Grover Cleveland. We, even with all we talked about with Burke Cochran and his skill, we didn't get into everything. And one of the things is that, uh, and I noticed this when I was recording that episode, I was looking for kind of a place to kind of anchor and say, well, this would be the great line of the speech. See, Burke Cochran didn't really work that way. He spoke in very plain language, and he tried to find real facts and arguments. And, uh, you know, so we didn't get into all of the this and that of the speech. But one of the uh, things that he's up against is Grover Cleveland's very popular. And we talked about that. But so when Burke Cochran is speaking against him in 1892, he has to deal with that. And the way he does is to say that, well, the only reason, you know, you like Grover Cleveland because he's a Democratic president, but it wasn't for anything he did. And as far as Republicans who are claiming they're going to help vote the Democratic ticket all of a sudden because Grover Cleveland's on it, there's no real evidence that happened in 1884. And, you know, who knows with elections? We never know why. But 1884 was extremely close. And so what Burke Cochran says is it's because of Burchard's speech. And Reverend Burchard had made this speech accusing the Democrats of being of the party of rum, Romanism, and rebellion. Really set off Irish people in New York City, especially because rum and Romanism and is, is an attack on them. And then the third one, rebellion, is calling all Democrats Confederates. Look, they were aligned with the South and aligned with the former Confederates, but let's put that aside for the second. That was a very derogatory speech when it was printed in not only in newspapers that not every working man read, but also in posters around the city that this had been said by James Blaine supporters and, you know, and vote Cleveland. What the point that Burke Cochran makes in 1892 convention is look at that. It was actually Democrats that voted Cleveland in. He got back some of the Tammany Hall Democrats because of that. The other point that Burke Cochran will make, which I didn't get into in the cast probably enough. He also talks a lot about the post-presidency of Grover Cleveland, says he's done nothing at all 
to help the Democratic Party. He's written a few letters to friends, referring to the silver letter, of course. And see, that's the other side. And I thought that's what we want to do in that cast and talk about that. But we, there's so much more to say about Burke Cochran. What I didn't talk about a lot in the episode is that he, he worked for Tammany Hall in 1892, certainly against Cleveland. But there were some times when he also was opposing Tammany Hall. In 1896, he's going to also oppose the winning candidate at a convention. So that makes two years in a row that he did that. And that's William Jennings Bryan. See, Burke Cochran's like the rest of the New York Democrats, hard money, don't like the whole silver idea, don't like what Brian's saying. In fact, he gives a big speech in Madison Square Garden, August 18th, against William Jennings Bryan. Because what Burke Cochran does in the 1896 election, he runs against William Jennings Bryan even after the convention. Now, he doesn't do that against Cleveland in 92. He stays with the Democratic Party, as he said in his speech. In 96, he just can't, and he supports McKinley. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection, ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like Democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics. And NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you. And what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. He's a candidate, Brian, who was swept into the nomination by a wave of popular enthusiasm awakened by appeals to prejudice and greed. He's a candidate who, declaring that this was a revolutionary movement, no sooner found himself face to face with the American feeling than he realized that this soil is not propitious to revolution, that the people of the country will not change the institutions which have stood the test and experiences of a century of institutions based upon the fantastic dream of populist agitators, takes George B. McClellan's spot in Congress. McClellan left to become mayor of New York. Cochran takes his spot. And he's elected up until 1920, and he dies in 1923. His last speech is at a Democratic, less significant speech, it's at a Democratic convention, making a speech nominating Al Smith for president. His most fervent appeals 
were those for home rule in Ireland, which he just barely lived to see. He supported the 1916 revolution there and supported all efforts for home rule in Ireland. He was an advocate for civil liberties, for trade union rights, for free trade, home rule. He was wealthy enough to be outside the total control of Tammany Hall, but nobody was completely out of its orbit. He was not just somebody who just spoke words. He also would use figures and facts. He was a bit of a polymath, and he could hold crowds' attention without using electronic amplification. It's in 1895 when he meets Jenny Churchill in Paris. She's widowed. She's the mother of Winston Churchill. They have a brief affair, remain friends that the same year, 1895, uh, Winston's 20-year-old son, goes through New York. He's en route to Cuba to cover the revolution there. And uh, he invites him to stay, Cochran does, with him as a house guest. And that's where he becomes a kind of mentor. Uh, He sees in Churchill a potential. He says, you have to run for office. Here's how Churchill's son describes it. Burke Cochran must certainly have been a man of profound discernment and judgment of character. As far as we know, he was the first man or woman Churchill ever met on level terms, who really saw his point and potentialities. Cochran, in some ways, fulfilled a role that Lord Randolph should have filled if he had survived. As a statesman, Cochran represented the U.S. all over the world. Churchill follows Cochran even after his visit. He he writes to him, please send me press goodings of your speeches. And um, when Churchill writes a book, The Scaffolding of Rhetoric, he notes the influence of Cochran using the best possible word, the correctness of diction, the rhythm, the use of long, rolling, and sonorous sentences, accumulation of argument by a rapid succession of waves of sounds and vivid pictures. This is Cochrane's speech to the Liberal Club in 1903 in the UK, which would have influenced Churchill. At this moment, in every quarter of the globe, forces are at work to supply your necessities, and improve your condition. As I speak, men are tending flocks on Australian fields and shearing wool, which will clothe you during the coming winter. On western lands, men are reaping grain to supply your daily bread. In mines deep underground, men are swinging pickaxes and shovels to wrest from the bosom of the earth the ores essential to the efficiency of your industry. And it's a lot better to say this than to say, I'm for free trade because the economics are better, etc. It's like painting this image of, there's all these people in the world working for you, and why don't you want to accept their efforts, that kind of thing. Cochran always told Churchill, speak the simple truth. Here's Cochran from the liberal speech again, liberal club speech. I have a farm on Long Island. I require plows. I am told that if I don't have protection from foreign plows, they'll be dumped on me. If that means I'll get plows cheaper than my own country can produce them, I say, dump on. Now, maybe it doesn't sound, because we're so used to the Churchillian and Cochrane-style rhetoric, but when you get a line like, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Here's Cochrane's answer to William Jennings Bryan, great, his great cross of gold speech. You know, Burke Cochran is the gold bug's best speaker. If I were asked to define civilization, I would say it is industrial cooperation. Everything that a man does for his own benefit 
acts directly on the interest of neighbors. No man can stand alone in a civilized community. There is not an ear of corn ripening in western fields that does not affect the prices of bread to you and to me. The farmer who scatters his seed upon the ground and by that act starts into motion the wheels of the factory. He sharpens the tools of the carpenter. He stimulates the construction of railroads. He causes the engineers to plan new bridges, crossing currents, new tunnels under rivers, new canals joining oceans, and separating continents. We fight on the sea, on the land. Yeah, you're hearing that? <laughs> okay. If the farmer did not work, the miner did not dig in the subterranean gallery, every other department of industry would languish. For men would not produce and create if they did not see in the industry and activities of others a prospect of a demand for the commodity which they produce. If we get silver coinage tomorrow, if we debase our standard of value, men say that still you would have the same property as you have today. You would still have the same soil, you would still have the same continent. And it is true. But so did the American Indian have the same rivers that roll past our cities and turn the wheels of commerce as they pass. So the mountains were full of mineral treasures 400 years ago. The same soil covered the fields. The same sun shone in heaven. And yet, there was none but the Indian pursuing the pathway of war through trackless forests, and the river bore no single living thing except him in his canoe. Well, Cochrane is... Uh, not very 2023 here, not very pro-Indian, but he is making a point about Brian, who is trying to say there's something magical about everything's in your, your eyes, that they're manipulating you with money. It's the same rivers, it's the same mountains in the country, it's the same continent, but everything, all that's changed is it's a gold money standard. And Cochrane says, well, yeah, it's the same mountains, but if you didn't have the industry we have, it would be in his very prejudiced view of what Indians are and were doing a violent land. Here's what Cochrane continues. All we have in existence is a si system of mutual cooperation, which is but another name for civilized society. All are admitted to share in every bounty which providence showers upon the earth. The dweller in the tenement, stooping over his bench, who never sees a field of, of waving corn, who has never inhaled the perfume of grasses and flowers, is yet made the participator in all the bounties of providence and the purifying influence of the atmosphere, in the ripening rays of the sun, when the product of the soil is made cheaper to him every day by the abundance of the harvest. It is from his share of this bounty that the populace wants to exclude the American working man. To him, we say, in the name of progress... You shall neither press a crown of thorns upon the brow of labor, nor press a scourge upon his back. You shall not rob him of study, of progress in the skill of his craft, or benefits by organization of the members who work with him at the same bench. You shall not obscure the golden prospects of a further improvement in his condition by a further cheapening of the cost of living, as well as by a further depreciation of the dollar which is paid to him. He reverses Brian's speech. He says, no, it's you, Brian, that's pressing your opponents on a crown of thorns. Cochran, who's a supporter of the labor movement, which is burgeoning at this time, uh, particularly the skilled labor movement, you know, sees in, in Brian 
He even makes little references to Brian not liking to employ workers, populists not liking to employ workers, that in, in effect, many people in some of the populist places are using very low-paid sharecroppers to get their riches, and that devaluing the currency, most importantly, would devalue wages, an argument that you don't hear in all of Brian's talk. When this tide of agitation shall have receded, this tide of populist agitation, this assault upon common honesty, upon common industry, when it shall have been abated forever, the foundations of this republic will remain undisturbed. The government will still shelter a people indissolubly wedded to liberty. you for listening to this. This is just some extras that we have from the, the previous cast, because there was so much that I kind of, I don't know, I, mean, I always feel like I didn't hammer down enough on some things. I don't glad to give you a little more exposure to Burke Cochran and also um, hammer down more on some of the nuances of politics at this time. These are the kind of things that normally, if you subscribe to the Patreon, right, with My History Can Beat Up Your Politics... M-H-C-B-U-I-P. So patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-I-P. That's the acronym for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. There's also a link on the www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We do things like this on a regular basis, extras, that you'll get. Um, not every episode. It certainly doesn't happen every episode. There are some episodes where I use up the scrapbook. Uh, in this case, like I really wanted to use some of the campaign songs in the episode, but you don't get a chance. So I put that on the Patreon from time to time. A little bit of uh, hearing the audio scrapbook. I want to thank you for listening. Website www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Thanks for listening.